History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. I am, of course, your host, Jackson Van Uden, and in today's episode, we are interviewing historian and author Steve Tibble about his book, The Crusader Armies. Now, in this episode, in this book, Steve addresses or battles some misconceptions that we have on the Crusaders and their armies. He also talks to us about the ethnic diversity of the Crusader states and their armies, whilst also detailing the makeup of some of their enemies' forces. Now, if you enjoy this episode and any of the content that we create here at History of Jackson, please do consider heading to the Buy Me a Coffee profile in the description below, or subscribing to History with Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts. Now, without further ado, I'll leave you with Steve. So hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. Today we welcome back author, historian and good friend, Steve Tibble. How are you doing, Steve? Oh, very well, Jackson. All the better for seeing you here. Oh, lovely. You flatter me. <laughs> so, so today we're talking about your book, The Crusader Armies. I've got my copy here. I could not put this one down. And this is with Yale. So I want to ask you, Steve, and I always ask this first question to everyone. What was the inspiration behind writing this book? Well... Thank you. Thanks, Jackson. Yeah, it was a it was a very slow burn. Uh, I was thinking about writing it for nearly 30 years, and it's basically a very, very slow burn. So it's a culmination of a lot of the things that um, really kind of irritate me, you know, if you, if you know what I mean. Basically, it's um, one of the things that irritates me is the way that we patronize the past and the way that we look at people in the past and think that somehow we're cleverer because we've got more resources. So partly this... The, this book was written to knock some of that attitude on the head. And, and I'm not being sort of stuck up about it because I, I remember, you know, I used to feel like that as well. You know, if you if you do a cursory read of a history book, you think, blimey, that's stupid. You know, why are these crazy guys doing these crazy things? And um, But usually the more you know about it, the less that is the case. The, the other thing that I really enjoy doing, which I hope came through in the book, is challenging modern misconceptions. And I think one thing we all, a, tra- a trap we all fall into is we look at the past through the prism of the present. You know, I mean, it's very difficult not to do that. And particularly with the Middle East, you know, you look at it through the prism of everything that's going on now that's been happening since the Second World War. Um, and you see, you know, a place that has a particular demographic, a particular re- religious um, fabric to it and, and particular warfare going on. And then we, we kind of take those prejudices and we assume that that's a, a guide to the past. Um, but the Crusades are an incredible contrarian take on things. I mean, it's really nothing like what we might imagine. And you can quite legitimately look at the past thinking, oh, I know quite a bit because I know what's going on now. But actually with the Crusades, it's 100% unhelpful. You really have to go back and put yourself in the minds and the context of the participants. And to me, that was the biggest challenge with that book and it was the thing that really excited me most about doing it and I, I can see throughout the book that you're you're working to try and address those misconceptions that people have about the region about the conflict but I think before we discuss those misconceptions before we discuss the armies of the crusade I think it'd be useful to build a little bit of context around the subject so what were the societies, politics and and climate like of the region because a lot of people just think we have the Europeans descend there and then there's all these Muslim communities around the outside. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Again, that that is a, 
runs to the heart of the mistake. Yeah, it runs to the heart of the trap we all fall into, which is that we think we know more than we do. And, and in reality, you almost have to go back 2,000 years to understand the Crusades. So, you know, obviously the Middle East was part of the Roman Empire, you know, the Holy Land, Egypt, um, Palestine or Israel, Lebanon, Syria, they, they were all part of the Roman Empire. So at the end of the Roman Empire, they were primarily Christian states. So the population were overwhelmingly Christian. Um, then you find in the 7th century onwards, you get invasions from, from Muslim armies um, from, from Arabia. And obviously they come in conflict with the local Christian communities there. They overrun a lot of the Middle East. And uh, so you, you find that you have... Um, Islamic rulers over populations that are still very largely Christian. Then in the 11th century, you, you find there are more invasions coming in, so more foreigners coming in, and these would be the Turkic tribes, people coming off the steppes. So, you know, the kind of people that we would think of now as, say, Mongolians with a, with a more nomadic heritage. And uh, they're not terribly religious, but they do happen to be, you know, Muslim as they enter the region. So to look at the Middle East now and think of it as, you know, primarily a conglomerate Muslim area uh, is a mistake. Certainly at the time of the Crusades, uh, the, the majority of the population of, of, say, for instance, the Crusader states were still Christian. And even in the areas that were that we think of as being the Muslim countries were you know, very large Christian minorities, particularly in places like Egypt and Syria. So it's very difficult to find clear borders. You know, it's not black and white. So the Crusaders were definitely foreign invaders. They'd been called in largely by the Byzantines, you know, who were Orthodox Christians, to come in and help them defend the area. Um, and they, the Crusaders, to a very large extent, saw their role as defending the local Christian communities and recovering ancient Christian lands. So, you know, if you're, if you're a local Muslim living there, that's not very plausible. But there is actually, you know, from their perspective, that's a legitimate perspective. Um, and similarly, from the Muslim side, there's no big conglomeration uh, the more you look at it, the more fragmented everything is. You know, there's, there's the obvious Sunni-Shiite divide. But even then, you know, you find within those communities there are massive divisions um, changing over time. And also politically, it's never crusaders against Muslims. You know, you quite often find that there, there are Muslim troops allying themselves with the crusaders, um, that, that, that different Muslim factions are fighting each other the whole time. Even someone like Saladin, who effectively made his kind of PR career out of out of saying that he was um, fighting the Crusaders, he spent the vast majority of his career fighting and killing fellow Muslims and capturing their countries. It's um, it's always more complicated than you think. So that's one thing that that was one of my little bugbears that that sort of ran through the book, which is trying to um, just explain how complicated it is and how misleading it can be to look at the past with you know if you read a copy of the times and then read the crusades it's something about the crusades you get a very different view than if you you have a broader understanding of the context at the time and that that building of that context really helps understand the conflict a little bit more as you say there it's not black and white and you have different communities because of the history of the region uh, the byzantiums the romans living yeah. in this area so when the the crusaders the, the foreigners from europe come across the Middle East, how do they interact with the population that's already there? Yeah, very good point. And obviously very complicated. So I don't think anybody would want to pretend that the Crusaders were, you know, sort of plaster saints. And, uh, you know, they're not Mother Teresa. They're coming out there and they're doing good work 
from their perspective, but they're, they, they're from the Latin church. So they, they've got the West European heritage of Christianity, which is what we call Catholicism. They usually call themselves Latins um, because they operated from the old Roman side of the empire, whereas the Byzantines, uh, the Romans, they were the Romans from the east part of the empire, and they, they, they had an, what they called the Orthodox. And that, So those are still the two main parts of Christianity today. But the, when, the, when the, the Latin crusaders, the, you know, the, the, the Catholic crusaders came through, there were inevitably conflicts with the local Christian churches, actually. Obviously, you know, there's more obvious conflicts with the local Muslim communities, but there are also problems with, you know, supplanting existing ecclesiastical hierarchies and so on. So there, there are some conflicts, but the amazing thing, you know, and in a way that is that is the obvious thing that people always assume with the Crusaders, that it's some kind of foreign influx and they impose themselves on a, on a you know, a, a population that they have to subdue. But, but in reality, when the Crusaders turned up, as I said, the, the majority of the population of the Crusader states were still Christian. So when they went into places like Edessa, uh, and what became the county of Edessa or the Principality of Antioch, um, they were by and large greeted as liberators, you know, because they were, they had, they'd had Muslim Turkic garrisons, but the majority of the population was still um, Christians. Um, again, obviously, there's always complications. The other big thing that people forget is that people have the need for affection marriage, children, and so on. And the Crusaders were not, not bringing their families over there. It wasn't, uh, you know, it's not somewhere that would be particularly safe for, for a lot of normal families. So you find that when the guys are out there, they almost instantly, li- you know, literally first generation, they marry local women. And those women, um, I, we, we don't know exact figures, of course, you know, there's no, there's no market research or census data. But... Um, we know from the chronicles and some legal documents that um, and often the, probably the majority of them would have been local Christian women and they'd be marrying these guys. They'd settle down and they'd form their own villages. Um, sometimes um, local Muslim women would convert, particularly in the early days. Um, but primarily you find that there's this, within, within a few years, and amazingly quickly, most of the people that we call the Crusaders and we think they're kind of, you know, Europeans wandering over are actually, um, you know, mixed community, mixed ethnicity. Um, even the kings of Jerusalem quickly married married into the local population. So uh, they married into local Christians, um, Armenians in particular. And uh, yeah, you see, you see that throughout. This kind of hidden, actually, in all the sources. We, I think, in modern times, we're much more, and particularly in the last twenty years, become much more obsessed with ethnicity as an indicator of identity. Much that was much less the case um, with the Crusades. You, you don't find those markers being particularly important. But religion is a much more important sort of signal of identity than than ethnicity. And often in the sources, you don't. It's only by accident that you realise that these Crusader knights that you're reading about, or this garrison of a Crusader castle, you know, they're they're actually all Arabs. It's only by the accident that the occasional chronicler might mention that these guys, you know, happen to be all Arab or you find a, a legal text where the guy would sign himself as, you know, uh, George the Arab. But then the next generation, George the Arab marries marries somebody, um, has a son called Baldwin. And as far as we know, he's just called Baldwin then. Um, so he, we look at the sources. We think we're looking at these European knights. But, but actually, if you stand back for a second, 
you can see that it's really an, an amazingly integrated community. Um, and again, I, I don't, wouldn't want people to think I'm naive. Well, I am naive, obviously, but it, I wouldn't want people to think I'm more naive than I really am. And I'm not suggesting that the guys are there because they are, you know, just Boy Scouts trying to do good deeds. I mean, there is some of that. Don't want to be too cynical. But, but equally, the, the key thing is that the Crusaders who went out there were so fundamentally outnumbered. You know, they're a tiny strip of land on the edge of a huge Muslim empire that they need all the help they can get. So people in Europe who would be thought of as heretics, you know, like the local Christians from a different sect, a non-Catholic sect, they're, they're actually your best mates when you go out there. Because they're the people who are going to be in the local militia. They're going to be the guys defending the castles with you. And they're the people um, that you've got to rely on to help you. Equally, you know, probably your wife's family are mostly from that community. And if you're second generation, it's your community as well. And so are your kids. So there is this kind of demographic um, outburst, really, at the beginning of the 12th century that turned these kind of ostensibly crusader armies into very integrated um mixed ethnicity, mixed mixed religious sect um, armies. And, and to me, that was one of the big things driving me writing the book, is that this continual pulling back to remember that what we're looking at is not what you'd think of from a Victorian novel or, you know, Walter Scott or whatever. These are guys who are very integrated into the Middle East. They just happen to be the Christian side, and they, by and large, happen to be Latin Catholics. It's it's really interesting how they're, they're going over from... A region, a continent which has very little tolerance for, you know, religious diversity uh, and different religious attitudes. You know, we've had crusades against different heretics in Europe, and yet moving across the Middle East, there seems to be a greater goal and acceptance of diversity. Now, your, your book is the Crusader Armies, and that that <laughs> plural is not lost on me. <laughs> so. Who were these these different armies that are, are fighting this region, and how is that diversity within the Crusader states affecting them? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's spot on. The um, so when I talk about Crusader armies, I'm also talking about their you know their competitors as well. So I, perhaps we can talk a little bit about the Muslim side, or what we think of as the Muslim side. And I think you're absolutely right because it sounds a bit geeky, you know, to talk about armies. You think, oh, okay, well this is all boys stuff, but in reality the the composition of that army as an expression of power and an expression of the, really it's kind of the state in the saddle because these are very basic societies and permanently in a state of war. You know, this is the state in the saddle. So if you can't understand their cultural, social, ethnic roots, you can't really understand what you're dealing with. Or it's certainly very misleading, which is, I think, where you get the kind of Victorian caricature and how, how wrong that can be. So, so I set out to look at many different armies because that's, that's the other thing. There is no one army. You, you do find some crusader armies, say in the northern crusader states, where nearly everybody, well, a, none of them, probably almost none of them are crusaders because technically a crusader is somebody who's on a crusade, who's on an armed pilgrimage. Um, you, you find that there's a, a section of the army are local European settlers. But, but any time after you know, say 1120, even those guys are, they may be Latin, they're pro probably Latin Catholics, but, um, you know, their mum was probably Armenian, their, their children are, are mixed ethnicity and so on. So there's nothing nothing that's this kind of uh, weird Victoriana view. 
The other thing in that army, save for say an army of, of the Principality of Antioch, uh, is that most of the guys wouldn't have been Europeans anyway. Most of them would have been Armenians or Syrians or some local Arabs, um, all of whom were Christian. Well, sorry, I don't mean all of those people were Christian, but all of the people in that army would, would primarily have been Christian. But even then, that's not even true either. You find, you know, you often get Muslim mercenaries and, and, and vice versa. So you, it's, it is a community on the march. And it's, the, it's in a way, it's the kind of the, um, the, the red hot fire of community building. It, because these were such fragile frontier communities, you know, you, the state gets in the saddle and that's what you see. And the, but these are guys fighting for, you know, for their families' lives. If if you want to go through some of the cast of characters on the Crusader side, the Armenians are very good. I mean, they're a they're a, a very good bunch, and they've got some fabulous um, characters. You find they've got specialist um, artillery people, you know, catapults. Uh, and there was one guy in particular um, who's got a fabulous pawn name. He's called Havadik, which I've, I, I don't know. I don't know how you pronounce it really. I pronounce it Havadik. But anyway, this guy, it was like Havadik will travel because he. He was in such demand that he would be, people would pay for him to come down from the Principality of Antioch and serve in uh, sieges all over the Middle East. So he came down and helped the, the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem's army at the Siege of Tyre, and he was outstanding. And you can see there is this kind of whole market where some of the Armenian guys are so skilled uh, and so tough that, that they're in big demand. And you find there are Armenian knights, there are Armenian castle garrisons, you find they get fiefs further down and so on so as a community it's pretty much as as you know the armenians have always been tough because they've always been on the frontier between you know byzantium and, and persia or rome and persia and and also the terrain is quite tough so you get this they're a pretty tough bunch of guys um primarily christian but independent you know they don't always like uh you know the, say the byzantine view of of the orthodox so in some ways then they're probably more pleased to see the Crusaders than you might think, partly because they're Christian, but also because they're not Byzantine. You know, so uh, there's a lot of that going on as well. Um, if you look into it, also the further you look down into the details, you find there are quite a few Arabs, um, because obviously the population of, of most of the Holy Land were, were Arab, particularly in the southern parts, and they were mostly Christian, as as the population had been for centuries before. Muslim invasions. So, and these guys, you you find them particularly in the initial days. You find them in the legal documents. You know, for instance, there's one family called the Arabi, and they're knights. So these are very prominent guys, great great fighters, um, got their own sort of little mini armies and lands, and and you you can follow them for a couple of generations, but because they're called Arabi, so when they sign a, a witness statement to a charter or something like that you can see oh that's nice you know the as the arab knights are out there in force again and then they just disappear and it's but it's not because they they're not there it's because all the all their all their kids are called you know amalric or baldwin or whatever and you just they're just not visible anymore they stop calling themselves baldwin arabi they're just baldwin so they can't disappear but you know from from some chronicle references they're all around um, there's one. There was one famous incident where castle fell, um, and it, it shouldn't have done. Um, it, people complained that it was impregnable, and then the guy surrendered. And uh, so there was a lot of debate about it. But in the course of that debate, just as an aside, the, the chronicler William of Tyre mentions that everybody was Syrian. 
literally everybody in the castle, including the commander. So this is a this is an entire crusader unit manning a critical fortification, supposedly impregnable, and every single person in it is a Christian Christian Arab. But it's just an aside. You only you only come across it by accident, and because people in in that period thought of religion as being more important than ethnicity, you often see references to, say, a Christian garrison, but they don't say whether they're Arab or Armenian or, or Frankish, not because they're being racist, it's just not important. It's, it's almost the opposite of racist, actually. It's such an integrated society that um, it doesn't even come up in conversation. They're just, you know, lads doing good work in the army. And, and the fact that they don't see the need to sign themselves off as the Arab or Arabia on the end of their name shows how how diverse and how integrated that society is out in out in these new these new latin states Absolutely. but i have i've got i have a question about some of these these people turning up you you mentioned how people are paying for people to arrive in their armies there's a lot of mercenaries how does this kind of contract warfare affect the relationship between the rulers of these these principalities which aren't particularly rich mm. and their subjects if they're constantly hiring new soldiers. You're a good point. I mean, uh, the, the data is incomplete. You know, okay, we're talking medieval here, so it's not. I'm always jealous of classicists. You know, we know so much more about that period, but we do, we do know that. Um, well, firstly, there was such a need. Okay, defending the Crusader states was an absolute nightmare because there wasn't enough land. You know, in medieval warfare. Most most of your local guys would normally have fiefs, so they would have you know plots of land given to them. They'd live off the land, and on the basis of that, they would kit themselves out and they'd hire some guys. You know, they they it would trickle down. They'd do the same, and they'd have little little mini units or armies of their own, um, which is all good, and that's that is what happened in the in the Crusader states. But the trouble is, they're quite small. There isn't a lot of land to go around. I mean, sometimes you find even like the King of Hungary tries to go out on crusade in the 12th century and uh, he writes to the hospitalers to say, uh, I'm coming out. I'd like to build a bit of land just to, you know, so I've got somewhere nice to live while I'm staying out there. And this is a king. You know, this is somebody rich. And the hospitalers write back and they say, sorry, mate, you know, really be lovely to have you. Uh, but there's nothing to buy. You know, literally, there's no, there isn't much land. Nobody's selling. Um, so there's this shortage of land. But there's this huge military need. So it's a, it's a kind of an anomaly. Normally, a big state would have big armies and so on. But here you've got these kind of frontier states where the military need is huge, but the, the land to accommodate a feudal army is very limited. So you kind of branch out in two directions. Um, one is that you, you have conscription sometimes. Conscription is never popular. But this is, you know, in the in the Latin East, when there's an emergency, I think everybody kind of gets it, you know, that the shopkeepers are out there. Um, you know, the farmers have spears and cheap crossbows and they, you know, they just run back to their houses and then go off to join on campaign. And we've got quite a few instances where that happened. It doesn't have to be full conscription or it could be a local conscription when there was a particular invasion. Um, and at that point also, these communities, as we've talked about, are very mixed. So you'd have local Armenians, you know, joining in, you'd have the local Arabs and so on, because it, everybody just mocks in. These are not highly skilled troops, so that's the trouble. So you can, they're the kind of arrow, they're the arrow fodder, you know, and they may be, they may be well motivated because 
they've got nowhere else to go and it's their families and their communities, but that doesn't make them skilled soldiers. So you kind of bridge that gap by looking at the third leg. So you've got the feudal leg, you've got the local, you know, levy on mass leg from, from temporary conscription or whatever, but then you, you've also got mercenaries. And that's, um, the good thing about a mercenary is that it's, you can turn them into something like a standing army if you've got enough money. Because then you can, you've got a garrison. You pay the garrison. These guys, you know, you've got crossbowmen there, and they, you know, they're, they're professionals. They got hopefully good kit, and they can do a good job. The, the the trouble that you very astutely pointed out there is that these were not rich states. Um, so some of the slack there was taken up by bringing um, guys in from Europe. I mean, there's not, there's not a big labour pool out in out in the Crusader states. And people like the papacy who are trying to organise the crusading movement and trying to defend the Christian Middle East, um, trying to gather money to do that. And you find that the uh, the military orders, the Templars and the Hospitallers, they you know they gather part of their job. You know, half of their job is fighting out in the Middle East. The other half of their job is raising funds and lobbying the Western European provinces to give more money and and men. To help, so that you find these big cash transfers from from Western Europe to to the Eastern Mediterranean, and that money, you know, obviously it can be used in different ways, but you can guarantee that 90 something percent of it goes into the military, you know, either castle building, or hiring mercenaries, or kitting out local local militia or whatever. Yeah, it's a very very tough world, and that's actually another thing that I've always been fascinated about the Crusades is the fact that everything is on a knife edge. You know, whereas you and I have nice, you know, we turn the electricity on, the, you know, we, we turn the tap and fresh water comes out. Whereas for them, they were living in permanent danger with so little to, to you know, to help them and their families. So, yeah, I've always admired them because I'm completely rubbish. You know, I'm lost if uh, anything goes wrong, you know. <laughs> but So I just, I'm in awe of anybody who can be resourceful and make things happen. I, I think that's the nice thing about, those orders particularly operating in those crusader states as they're able to be resourceful but something that stuck out for me is you know those those hiring those mercenaries those military orders which we touched on on our last episode about the templars about your your book the templars they it seems to be this kind of professionalization or at least a semi-professionalization of the fighting force in the crusader states how does that professionalization of fighting and 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 the military represent an evolution from the more individual fighting style from Europe. Yeah, no, you're spot on. They, so Europe it tends to be more peaceful than the Middle East. I mean, that's that's the fundamental thing, really. So the military side of things takes a, a lower priority. It's not, it's not to say that Europe's peaceful. You know, people are always squabbling. The different provinces of Europe are always fighting each other. And that's not helpful for the, for the, for the crusade movement because it means kings are distracted and, you know, England and France are always on the verge of giving each other a good kicking. And, you know, so it, it's that's not helpful. But the armies of Europe tend to be not pushed to extremists. You know, they're not permanently living on a knife edge and they're quite dispersed, I guess. So, so if you're a knight living in England, how many times are you actually going to fight? How many times are you going to be com- campaigning in an army um, and you know and operating, so learning how to manoeuvre, how to put your skills into action, not just as an individual combat, but as a as a unit and as an army? Uh, and so you find that in Europe, there's a much more individualistic approach, as you mentioned. So people like to show off and they like to do 
you know, they like to be seen, how brave they are, blah, blah, blah. But they're not really used to operating or maneuvering as, as groups. And you and you, similarly, you find the infantry, because they're down market and the people, you know, in charge are, are posh, they don't they don't prioritize the infantry, so they're under-resourced, under-trained, and what have you. Whereas if you look at the Latin East, they they may they may have wanted to do all that, but they didn't have the luxury of doing it. You know, so you don't find for instance, in Europe, you find there's a lot of tournaments and you know large, large scale sort of chivalric combat. You don't find that in the Latin East at all, uh, because everybody's got something better to do. They don't need to prove themselves in a kind of an artificial way, because those guys are just much better at warfare. Probably they don't want to be, but they have to be because they're in the saddle, you know, year after year after year. And you can you find guys in their sixties, even 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 older, still campaigning every year. And legally having a legal obligation to do that because they're just not enough warm bodies. So there's a kind of enforced professionalism that the guys become very good at fighting as an army because they do it the whole time um, and they don't have any way around that. Similarly, when you're facing um, the local local opponents are much more likely to be light cavalry, say Mongolian um, steppe cavalry. And those people are a nightmare to work with. So what you do need is good infantry, infantry with crossbows, infantry with spears. So again, you have to you find there's a bigger professionalization of the infantry in the East at the same time as there's a much more professional approach on, on behalf of the cavalry as well, because no one has any choice. And you can see the effect of that on medieval kings, medieval princes who crusaded and then went back home and came, became incredibly effective military commanders in in their own regions or when fighting foreign powers. I think, can't remember which Edward it was, Hammer of the Scots, he was an incredibly powerful military commander. Yep, Edward won. Ed. Yeah, yeah, he was... There's yeah, too, many was Edwards. too many Edwards. Yeah, so many Edwards, so little time. But yeah, no, he was, he was a formidable crusader. He didn't have a big army, so he, had, he was very limited in what he could do out there. But... I think everybody recognised he was a great general. I mean, um, uh, there was an assassination attempt on him when he was out there, even after the temporary truce had been arranged. Not because they thought that his Muslim opponents thought he was a danger, but the Mamluks recognised that he could come back, and he was actually a very good general, and he could come back with a proper army. So they, there was a, a very brutal assassination attempt on him by by an assassin with a big A um, when he was in his bedroom uh, with his with his wife, pregnant wife. And it was something like out of the born identity. You know, this guy came to the door and just said nothing. He was one of his one of his household, had been one of the local guys been taken on part of his household, and a, and a fight broke out. But the guy, you know, it would just literally open the door, knife out. Um, Edward Edward was was wounded and and <laughs> managed to reach back. because um, this is a sign of how violent the times are, managed to reach back to his bedside table get a knife and just um, stab the guy in the face. So it just killed the guy outright, even from a standing start. Um, he, he was a tough character. He was a good general, Edward I, but also a tough character in, you know, in a personal fight as well. And he's, he's, he's certainly one of my, my favourite kings because of stories like that. And, and you, we've mentioned a couple of things. I, did want to, I don't want to leave this thing out there. You mentioned the, the importing of crusading devices like trebuchets and catapults but also also castles i think i'd be doing this you 
a disservice, this interview a disservice, and the, author, uh, the audience a disservice if we didn't discuss castles, trebuchets, and catapults. <laughs> what what kind of what what kind of effect do they have on the crusading states and, and their armies because they are such powerful devices and, and buildings? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's there's a lot of academic controversy about you know where where different kinds of catapults come from and different siege engines and so on and, and the influence of China and the East and and Europe and the, the way they they meld together and um, that, so that's a bit of a minefield. So I don't want to put down too many markers on that. But certainly the Crusaders were you know very good at adapting to what they had to do and a lot of what they had to do, particularly in the early days, was sieges. Uh, when they were trying to roll up the the, the castles, um, the, the fortified cities on the coast of Palestine and Syria. Um, they, were, they were very good at partly at the catapults, as you mentioned, but they also had a, a kind of technique that was fairly unique to them, which is the siege tower. You know, there's this kind of building a huge tower and then just remorselessly rolling it forward until you can get to the walls drop down a few tree planks or whatever. I mean, horrendous. You know, you're high up and you're crawling under fire or jumping under fire across tree trunks above this kind of abyss. Um, you know, that that could really win a, win a siege for you. And you find the Crusaders were very effective in the first years on the coastal sieges. And it was partly because of things like that. But it was largely because they had um, support, naval support. So the Italian navies. Uh, that we tend to forget about, actually. We tend to think of the Crusaders as being, you know, the Franks, the French, the Germans, the English, um, which is all true up to a point. But the Italians were incredibly important because it was with their navies, you know, the Venetian navies, Genoa, Pisa, they all were all big naval powers, and they were able to help capture all the cities of, of the Holy Land. And that that's what created the kind of link, the essential link between the Crusader states and, and Western Europe. Because without that, you know they're kind of they're dead in a month. You know if you can't get men and reinforcements and money over there, they're not really sustainable. It's um, I, I know people don't like to look at it like this, but it's to me it is like the American Civil War. You know they they're on a hiding to nothing. They they the, the Holy Land is basically indefensible on its own merits. It just can't survive. It only survives because it's got lots of help. In the same way as Confederates, you know you just look at. The population and the GDP of the Confederate States—it's obvious they're going to lose. The the only issue is how much, how long it's going to take to lose, and how painful that's going to be. The the other point you quite rightly raised was castles. I think there's there's two kind of interesting things about that. One is you look at a map of the Holy Land and you see a, an overlay of castles. You know, hundreds and hundreds of castles. Not um not just on the frontiers either. In fact, most of them aren't on the frontiers. And I think traditionally people have looked at that and said, oh, okay, so we've got this narrative where you've got these kind of foreign oppressors coming over, they're um, holding the natives down, you know, they're deeply unpopular. So they've got all these castles here to be as part of their oppressive master plan. And it's very, that's a compelling way of looking at it. I totally understand why people see it that way. In reality, there was almost no, as we've talked about, most of the population were Christian anyway. Um, there were, there were, and even with the Muslim community, there were very, very little active discontent. I mean, I don't know how happy people were. There's no market research. But there, there are no uprisings, um, significant uprisings during the, 
during the period of the Crusader states over, over the whole of the 200 years. So they, they, weren't, they weren't there for oppressing a whole community. What they were there for, and that's one of the things I do write about a lot in this book and another book I wrote called The Crusader Strategy, is, is the criminality and how the, the Middle East had been so violent and criminalised long before the Crusaders got there. I mean, basically, the whole place had been a war zone and very, very destabilised for hundreds of years. Um, and you, you often find that so this, this myriad of small castles are really there to stop bandits, to stop muggers and so on. And very often, well, certainly in significant cases along road systems, the, those little castles are there on the foundations of Roman fortifications, which were doing exactly the same thing. You know, there's just, these are quite, you know, difficult areas and, and policing them, literally policing them is what they're about. It's, it's about protecting local communities rather than oppressing them. So to me, that's one of the funny things about castles that people don't naturally think about, because why would you? The, the other thing that's really fun about the Crusader castles is, particularly towards the end of the 12th century, when you get Saladin on the scene and you find, you know, so you've got these huge armies, huge um Saladin sets up an Ayyubid empire, his family empire, and he's combined, he's created a huge unified empire that goes all the way from, you know, Yemen, Egypt, Syria, up into towards Mesopotamia. So it's, for at long last, there's a big unified uh, Muslim state uh, that can create huge armies that are, you know, even if you beat it one year, he'll be back next year with a different one. I mean, that's the ultimate problem the Crusaders are facing. So one way they did face try and face that was by putting the small numbers of men they did have in better and better castles. And it kind of works up to a point. And you, want the, you know, one of the main ways you do this is by just making the castles much more sophisticated. And if you ever get a chance to go over there, it's, some of them are absolutely beautiful. You can still see the... You can just feel the quality of the thinking and the workmanship that went into it. And you find they're, they're layered. So you get wall one set of walls, and then behind them is another set of walls, that, which is why they're called concentric castles. And these are, not, these are not your average castles. They're not average in the sense that an aircraft carrier isn't a typical ship in a fleet, but it is the kind of cornerstone of the fleet. So in the same way, you get these big concentric castles on the frontiers. And... Relatively small garrisons can hold out for a very long time, you know, waiting relief. Uh, so you find after after the Battle of Hattin, which was a cataclysmic battle where Saladin um, defeated the army of the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem, some of the, some of the castles on the frontier held out for a year and a half, nearly two years. I mean, the guys, the thing that defeated them was that they didn't have enough salt. You know, people started to go blind, and that's when the castles had to give in. Um, but the the castles themselves were magnificent. They were. Um, yeah, as, as, as almost a work of art. And I think that's, well, certainly that's one thing I love when I'm in in the region is being able to go there and just soak up a little bit of that atmosphere. It's it's another thing that we put a European lens onto is of how we've used castles here in Europe, England, France, and the intimidation purpose of those, and then transposing that view onto the Middle East and the Crusader States. As you said, it's another misconception that a lot of people have. But you mentioned Saladin and the Ayyubid Empire. There's several other opponents of the Crusaders. You have the Egyptians uh, and so many more. There are their armies 
wholly Muslim because we've looked at how the Crusader armies are not wholly Christian. Absolutely right. I mean, particularly not just wholly Christian, they're not just wholly Latin, you know, they're not wholly Catholic. Um, yeah, so you look, I think that's a very, very good point. The, to me, the biggest gap in our modern perspective is Egypt. So we look back at the Egyptian army and you think, okay, well, I don't know much about them. You know, what, what did they do? They must have been a bit unimportant. In, in reality, when the Crusaders turned up, um, certainly in the south of south of the region, they were the Egyptians were the main people to worry about. Uh, they had a huge professional army, and they also had a professional fleet. You know, they they had huge amounts of cash as well because the Nile Delta is the most cash generative part of the entire region. So Egypt is kind of a bit of a honeypot, really. It's fantastic. You can base an empire there. Which the Fatimid did, um, so they've they've got this wonderful empire. They've got um, an army that's even got arsenals. Um, they've got manufacturing. You know, they ironically, the people always think of the Crusaders as being the most heavily armored, and you know all of that. And there is there is quite a lot of evidence that the Egyptian troops would be every bit as heavy armored, and because they had state run. Um, factories, they, they would have looked much more impressive in uniform uh, and heavily heavily kitted out than, than the Crusaders. The, the, I think the, the problem from an Egyptian point of view is that they lost, and they lost to everybody. They, you know, they lost to the Crusaders and they lost to their, um, their Muslim opponents as well. So they've kind of been airbrushed out of history a bit. Um, and it's a wonderfully rich and complex army. If you look at the Egyptian army, to me, it's it's almost um, it's 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 like an encapsulation of everything that we've been talking about in terms of how we misinterpret the past. So we look at this army in Egypt, and it's Muslim. It's a Muslim state, and so on. But what would what what were they really like? Well. If you look at the army, I suspect most of them were Christian, or certainly large large parts of most large parts of the Egyptian population were Christian. But they primarily didn't even fight in the army. the The Egyptian army largely, and certainly the kind of more heavy cavalry arm of it, were Armenians. And the the rulers of Egypt at the time that the Crusaders arrived were Armenians, just by you know one of the many accidents of history. And these the Armenian rulers were Muslim. They were they were Shiite Muslim, and that's an, that's another issue. But they were Muslim. But when they when they called back home to Armenia and asked their mates to come and help them, most of them were Christians. So you find these you know the elite cavalry regiments in the Egyptian army, which are their striking force, and they're you know probably a big part of the army. They're probably Christian. Quite a lot of them might even have been Catholics, because there are obviously quite a lot of Catholic Armenians as well as Orthodox ones. Then then you look at the infantry. And the infantry in Egypt again didn't seem to come from Egypt. They were they were primarily um, soldiers from sub-Saharan Africa. So they they were delivered to the Egyptians either from slave traders uh, operating in in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and there were a couple of Christian states, um, Nubia and so on, next to the Fatimids. So they had arrangements with them where they would supply troops as as treaties, as part of you know diplomatic treaties. Or, or for cash, um, or some people would volunteer. So you have these sub-Saharan African um, infantry units, which are quite exotic to everybody that sees them, and the chroniclers will go, oh, I've never seen people like this before. And they were using you know, very uh, interesting and, and unusual weapons to, to both sides. Um, 
And and again, on top of that, you would often find they'd have Bedouin light cavalry. So you'd have an Egyptian army um, where almost nobody would be Egyptian. That's the, ultimately the ironic thing, where the generals would probably be Armenians, where most of the elite troops would be Christian, um, where the infantry would be sub-Saharan Africans, many of whom would have been Christian as well. The, you know, the Nubian states and so on were, were, were Christian. Or they would have been um, uh, shamanic, I guess, religions, uh, whatever religions the, the local um, sub-Saharan Africans had at the time. So we use the shorthand of saying, oh, this is Muslim army and it's fighting the Crusaders. And it's like, so far from the truth. I mean, the other thing from saying it's a Muslim army is you think, oh, well, of course they're going to fight the Crusaders. Um, in reality, there was every chance they could have been allies, and they probably should have been in some ways, because the, they'd been fighting. The, the, the Egyptians have been fighting for decades against the new Turkic invaders, just you know, long before the Crusaders had arrived. And it was that, because, because the Turks had, had adopted Sunni Islam, they always saw the Shiite Egyptians as being, you know, heretics and so on. So there was there was never an easy coalition there to be had, and uh, yeah. So it's it's a microcosm of how complicated things are, and the things that we think we're seeing. You know, if you look back from where we are now and and think of an Egyptian army, it's not at all what you see on the ground. It absolutely, couldn't be further from the truth. And it goes back to that that's that phrase that you said at the beginning of the episode it's it's not black and white it's not a black and white conflict it's not a simple and easy conflict for us to understand but by looking at the egyptians the crusader communities we can understand that it's not black and white now at one point the crusader states fall you've said it's inevitable owing to the lack of resources the money it takes to sustain these communities and these these armies what happens to the civilians in the Crusader, Crusader states when it falls? Because a lot of time they're second, third generation Frank descendants who are now integrated mm. the local communities. They're, they're part Armenian, they're part Arab. So what happens to these people? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, I wish I had a definitive answer. And we know what happened. I mean, basically, our, the Crusader states fell twice. You know, they, they fell to Saladin, you know, 1187, 1188, 1189, that kind of thing. There was an almost total collapse. Um, and at that point, you, what you find is that people who were defined, communities that were Frankish, as in, you know, that had a more European tinge to them, were pretty much wiped out wherever they could be. So after Hattin, the troops that, that, the, the troops that fought at Hattin were a very large proportion of the male population, actually. Um, something, the army was probably about 20,000 strong. Different, all different parts of the local local community, um, and the the military orders. The prisoners were were, were executed on the battlefield, and uh, most of the other guys were um, sent into slavery. So they bought as you know they were they were bought as slaves. So that part of the community was gone, um, and as, and you find the the civilian communities, all the all the villages and towns. Um, we don't know a lot of detail. We know that. You know, a lot of refugees holed up in Jerusalem for a while, and then they were um, some of them were bought out, they were ransomed, some of them were put in slavery. All of the villages, the small villages and towns, disappeared. So one can only imagine that you know people either managed to escape or they were kind of raped, killed, enslaved. Um, so the Frankish communities of, of the hinterland just disappeared. Um, 
the, interestingly, the, that's not the same as saying that the Christian community has disappeared, because I think there was always a, a distinction in the, in the minds of um, Saladin and his, you know, Mamluk um, sort of, um, you know, descendants, that um, that there was a distinction between the two. That the local Christian communities, uh, like say the Orthodox, the Arabs, the Armenians, and so on, were, were natives, whereas what they didn't want was Europeans out there. And I think it was partly pragmatic. You know, if you've got a, a local European community there, then everybody in Europe is thinking, oh, okay, maybe we should be doing something to help our brave lads out there or whatever. So if you can get rid of the local community and and to a large extent their castles, then it's much more irrelevant and difficult for, for Western Europe to come to their aid because there's nothing to aid. So I think there, there was a kind of a, a pragmatic um, clampdown on... on um, on the Westerners. Uh, and you find the same when the Crusader states fall for the second time, you know, when you've got these huge Mamluk and Mongol armies in the you know, second half of the 13th century marauding round. And by 1291, the game's pretty much up. Basically, the, the Western, Western lads are pretty much forced out or enslaved or killed. Um, but the local Christian communities uh, stay on, by and large. And that's, that's another thing that we, we haven't mentioned, which is this whole heavy dose of pragmatism. You'd think it might be fun to do, you know, kind of put people into boxes and say, well, I don't want Muslims here and I don't want Christians there. In, in reality, landlords want people who are going to pay the rent, you know, and in a, in a, in a, effectively in an agrarian society, you want people who are going to be tilling the fields and giving you produce and paying for the privilege of being there. So um, ultimately, with, you, you find people get excitable after things like sieges, but once things settle down, nobody really wants to do massive, um, you know, sort of disturbing of the peasantry too much. And you find that, you know, you do get Muslim peasant communities in the Latin kingdom of Jerusalem, for instance, and they stay there happily for, you know, decades and centuries. Um, that's not to say that they wouldn't have preferred to have Muslim landlords, but in reality, the levels of taxation weren't very different. They had religious freedom. They had their own justice system. They, you know, if you, were, if you were a peasant and you kept your head down, uh, I doubt it made a huge amount of difference to your life. That's a that's a really nice way of bringing about that diversity and that tolerance that has been a, a common thread throughout throughout the episode and throughout your book. But this this question, I think it's 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 applying the history. So, what can this 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 book about Crusader armies and the the attitudes of the Crusader states tell us about today? Uh, earlier in the interview, you said if you read the Telegraph and then you read the book, you get a very different <laughs> approach. Now, if we read the book and then we read the Telegraph, <laughs> how does that change that? <laughs> yes. Well, I have to say, I think I thought that was a really good point, but I, I, I think this is one area where I mean, I love I love trying to interpret the world I live in through the prism of history because you know, obviously, I read a lot about that. I think you, the danger is you can read too much into detail. So I, I could give you an answer now that says, oh, yes, you know, there's a lot going on in Gaza. Let's look at Gaza. It's an old Templar castle. It was an old Christian town. You know, what does this mean about the modern modern situation? And I, I, I personally, I don't think it means a lot at all. I mean, one, one thing that is obvious is that people come and go and that different communities have different claims on different bits of land. And, and the trouble is they have multi-layered claims that are not easy to solve you know i mean if there was an easy solution to modern problems we'd have 
really have come to them. And, you know, obviously there are multiple different groups that have more or less legitimate claims to the same piece of land. And it's, you know, on that kind of basis, it's it's very difficult to be too pragmatic, you know, sort of like Northern Ireland. If, if it was, if things had been clear cut, it wouldn't have been a long running problem. But different communities all have their own perspective and those perspectives have do have, are grounded in some justice, you know, on multiple levels. Um, uh, one thing I, I would take out of it in a general sense is that tolerance and diversity can be additive. You don't have to approach tolerance and diversity from the basis of trying to be a plaster saint. I think that I saw, what I see in the Crusades is a lot of tolerance and diversity because of pragmatic reasons that actually societies, once you get your head around it, thrive and prosper if you get well-integrated use of resources. And that means using, you know, making sure that everybody's happy, societies are stable, people are, you know, you get the best out of people, you get the opportunities out of people. So one thing, yeah, that's one thing I'd take out from it is that there is a path of, of tolerance which actually produces benefits for people it's not something you have to do because it's virtue signaling or because you're going to go to heaven if you do it or whatever it's something that makes for more stable societies if you can if you can grab it properly and control the process and i think the crusades do show that in, in some ways that's that's a lovely answer steve so thank you very much for that one and now we have the final fun question as we do for all the episodes so you're used to this one now so when you're when you're writing a book, obviously not everything can go into the book. Um, you know, we have great shame where things are left on on your your desk and the cutting room floor. What was the most interesting piece of information that you couldn't include in this book, even though it is jam packed full of facts? <laughs> well, thank you, Jackson. Yeah, you sound like my publisher, the uh, the lovely Yale. Um, so basically, I, when I wrote Crusade Ramos, is quite a big book, um, and it was actually a much bigger book, much bigger. So Yale quite rightly came back and said, hold on, mate, this is, you know, this is all good stuff, but we can't have that in a book. You know, people, you'll kill somebody with that. So they they encouraged me very, very, very vigorously to take out quite a lot. So what, what I did was focus in Crusader Armies on the things we've been talking about today, which is, ethnicity, social cohesion, and armies, you know, the kind of more tactical deployment of things and how these societies manage to get along and how the armies reflect that. The the things I took out were the other the other little bugbear or the other little hobby hobby horse I have, which is thinking that, you know, that people are idiots just because they don't wash very often, you know, just because they smell like, you know, somebody who hasn't had, had a bath in three years doesn't mean that they're not intelligent and it doesn't mean that they can avoid strategy. And actually, I, I've always had it in my head that these guys were much better strategists than we are, precisely because they didn't have so much in the way of resources, but they did have so much more to lose. So the bits I took out were the, the things relating to strategy and how these societies managed to take a much longer term view than our governments do. Our governments kind of tend to you know, talk nonsense, I think, about strategy because 
they're being run by PR teams. You know, they're not really strategic. Whereas I think sometimes you look back in, in the Middle Ages and you can, if you deconstruct activity, you can find really strong patterns of strategy. So I took all that stuff out, which pained me. Um, but then Yale assuaged my pain by, by publishing it as another book called The Crusader Strategy, which hopefully we'll talk about at some point soon. That's a very nice plug for our next episode and your other book as well. So in terms of plugging this book, Steve, where can people get a copy of The Crusader Armies and where can they interact with you online? Well, thanks, Jackson. Yeah, um, the, the book's available on Amazon or Yale Books and, and so on, all, all, good, all good bookshops. Um, the, I, lo- I love hearing from people. I love um, people coming up with their views. I love seeing all that. And you can find me, I've got a website, which is stevetibble.com. Uh, but I also operate on the wonderful universes of Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram and, and Facebook. So you can find me on all those places. Awesome. And I'll make sure there's a link in the description for your book and your social media so people go away and get a copy, but also interact with you and, and learn from you online as well. So thank you very much for coming on, Steve. Thank you, Jackson. Real pleasure, as always. So thank you for listening to this newest episode of the History of Jackson podcast with Steve Tipple. I absolutely enjoyed having the misconceptions that I have about the Crusade and the Crusade Estates being corrected by Steve and the conversations that we had about diversity within the Crusader armies, within Crusader society was absolutely fascinating. Now, if you enjoy this episode or any of the other episodes that we create here at History of Jackson or some of the content on our social media or on our amazing blog, please do consider heading to the buy me a coffee profile in the description below or subscribing to history jackson plus on apple Podcasts. that will really help us to continue to do what we do here at history with jackson now next week our episode looks at the other book that steve just introduced us to which is crusader strategy so we're going to be welcoming back steve to discuss the second of his books